This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. China, the one-party state governed by the Chinese Communist Party, CCP, is a curious case. According to the West, China is an evil authoritarian dictatorship in which people have no rights. Yet over the course of the past three to four decades, China went from a dirt-poor nation to the second biggest economy in the world, lifting millions and millions of people out of poverty in the process. So what's the deal with China really? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Jun Shi, Associate Professor of Economics at John Jay College and Graduate Centre at CUNY. He's also an expert in global political economy. Interestingly, Junxi lives and teaches in the US now, but he was born and grew up in China. Welcome to the show, Jun. Thanks for having me, Nashran. China is governed by the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. But are they actually a communist state today? So for most communist parties that I've known, um, they do not, if they happen to be leading a country, a particular government, normally they don't, they don't call themselves a communist country. Because in the communist terminology, communism is a future society that uh, will eventually arrive. That society would be without uh, exploitation, without classes, without all the, the problems, the, the contradictions from, from, from capitalism or all the prior human history. So that, that is like a long-term goal for all the communist parties. For the existing countries with a communist party leadership, they would normally call themselves a socialist country, which is mm-hmm. really very first step in building communism. But it has still has a state. The socialist countries, they, they would that would be how they describe themselves. In the West, uh, like the United States, it has been a tradition to call them, uh, you know, communist states. I mean, that right. really it's a lack of knowledge about uh, communism itself. Or they want to, you know, use the word to mobilize kind of uh, scary emotion, I guess, among people. The Communist Party of China, for example, they would not claim themselves as achieved communism. When the Chinese Revolution first won, I mean, you know, on national level, the Chinese Communist Party claimed that they were building a new democracy. That was the particular stage along the road of revolution. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they finished certain reforms, transformations. Uh, Around 1956, the Chinese Communist Party would say that now we are officially entering the phase of socialism. Right. Um, And that phase lasted until today. Um, It's just the the particular terms that that has changed. Uh, For example, the Chinese Communist Party nowadays, they would call the kind of society they're building is the socialism with Chinese characteristic, different from the socialism that we are used to seeing in Soviet Union or uh, under Mao Zedong. But they would also claim that it's different from, let's say, the U.S. type capitalism. So it's a a, a unique kind of social system that they're, they're building. But as an economist, how do you analyze China's political economy? Do you consider it a socialist nation or a capitalist one, irrespective of what the party claims or how they view themselves? I think if you look at the economy itself, it is definitely clear that most of the people, most of the labor, the workers, they work within a capitalist kind of relationship. 
So they're not working for socialist firms. They're working for a private employer. But the other people would say that, well, if you look at who has the ultimate control of the economy or who has the ultimate control in the, in the national politics, they would say that it's not clear that the capitalist class has yet get that level of control, that level of power. So there is different perspectives on, on this. I, I tend to think that you know, it has features that are like you know, any a typical capitalist market economy. Right. But it also has some distinguishing features that are very different from you know, a typical capitalist society. It is a mixed model in a lot of ways. At one point, China was one of the poorest countries in the world. But in the period of 30 to 40 years, right, Jun, it has become a global economic superpower. Would you attribute this to capitalism? So there are two parts, you know, within this question. Right. First, if, if China didn't go with capitalism, is it possible for China to still grow, right. um, you know, with a reasonable rate of growth? I think the answer is definitely yes. I mean, uh, throughout the Mao era, for example, China maintained a reasonable rate of growth. And that was achieved without sacrificing, say, ecology environment, without creating huge level of inequality right. uh, or corruption, you know, all those kind of things. And, and working class, you know, absolutely benefited from that growth economically, politically. So it was definitely, a, a, I think, a viable growth model. So the answer to that is, is you know, China could grow without mm-hmm. capitalism. But if we, let's say, without that hypothetical question, after China made the transition to a kind of a capitalist market economy, what has been the main driving force uh, right. of, of China's rapid growth? I think it was really a, a mix of policies. It has definitely successfully created a new class of capitalists at the expenses of millions of workers and also with you know all the so huge social cost but uh, at the same time china maintained relatively gradual and cautious approach to market right. so it didn't do this russian type shock therapy to go to market economy right away but it did it carefully you know had a little plan behind it and it also maintained some careful control state control state regulation of the market economy. So the, the end result of that was that, that China was able to achieve a very high rate of growth for many decades. In many countries, if you just simply create a class of capitalists, and oftentimes that means a, some huge destruction of the society. And the capitalists, after they get money, there is no, I mean, there, it's not natural for them to always invest in, the, in this country and they, you know, to, to, to build economy they, or for growth, they can easily run away with their huge cash. They can go to Switzerland. Right. They can go to the United States or Canada. We are all so familiar with this kind of story. Mm-hmm. But the, and the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government, at the same time, they had this uh, very strict regulation or control on them. So it, it pushed them towards growth, towards investment. And that it was that kind of mechanism that really created the rapid growth record in, in China. So you cannot just have capitalism or free market, but it has to be this particular blend of, you know, this market economy and this very effective regulation at the mm-hmm. same time. 
Now, while you address China's growth, you're also someone who has been very critical of its economic model today of over the past 20 to 30 years. So what would you say is the problem with Chinese capitalism today? <laughs> the problem with, with capitalism is that yeah. it is capitalism. In any capitalist society, you, right. you observe all sorts of problems, big and small, and they can all be directly, indirectly be traced back to to capitalism, that's the root of all the all the problems. But you know, if you look at the more concrete level, um, I think the huge inequality in in this country in, in China. I mean, that is definitely a huge huge problem. The transition to capitalism that, that's always the case. Like Marx said, you need to create you know this the one side that with lots of money that's mm-hmm. capital, and the other side that without money. That uh, you know that you need to create this uh, newly free labor. Um, that's exactly what happened in China, and that process uh, created some of the largest, you know, biggest wealthy families, uh, capitalists, um, who you know can buy all sorts of things in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, the millions of workers um, they lost their lifetime jobs. Their children, their own family, for generations, I, I think that they, they definitely suffered greatly in that process. And that is not something to be written off easily. You know, it's, right. it's a huge price. And the China is still paying for the, that price right now, um, that, that huge inequality. At the same time, when you develop capitalism from, you know, this socialist society, that there's all sorts of things that the capitalist class needs to navigate through. They need to work out all kinds of arrangements with the mm-hmm. bureaucrats. And that is the basis of corruption. Um, they need to you know, make sure that, well, I want to buy that factory. I want to privatize that factory. Right. They, they can easily say, give, you know, they give the mayor, you know, I'll give you 20% of the whole thing, right? You let me buy that whole thing uh, at a discount. So I think that the really that transaction in this transition to capitalism was the created a huge corruption. You know that is a big problem for Chinese people. I think it definitely uh, affected the legitimacy of the party significantly. At the same time, you know the whole transition also brought a disruption to the environment. The capitalists, in order to make money, they they disregard all the regulations, all the rules. I mean, there are many rules, strict rules against pollution, against all the kind of things. But, you know, in transition, there's, uh, the capitalists can, can do all kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, so despite all the regulations, they were still able to damage a big part of the, the uh, ecology. So there are many such, such problems. If you look at other concrete uh, aspects, they see the gender problem has been uh, getting worse. Mm-hmm. You know, this, uh, with the rise of market economy, that uh, there is a reestablishment of, of the, the male dominance or this patriarchy system. Right. Um, if you look at other things, I mean, it's, it's, it's everything has, if you, you go back, it, it really started with the 1980s, 90s uh, transition. Mm-hmm. And those, those, those problems, once they started, there's no natural ending to all those. It, it is always getting worse. It tends to get worse. China has faces so many problems right now. One thing that the Chinese leadership has been focusing on is to maintain a reasonable rate of growth. That 
with growing with a growing economy, or many of those problems can be pushed aside. But eventually, those problems will will come to haunt you. You know, right. <laughs> like a specter. The, the Chinese economy is growing much slower than before. So I think that the pressure from you know with addressing all those social problems, political problems that arise in the transition to capitalism. That is going to be a big thing, big challenge to the Chinese leadership in the next decade. On the show with me today is Jun Shi, Associate Professor of Economics at John Jay College and Graduate Center CUNY. After the break, I ask him why many leftists and left movements in the world seem to side with China in the US-China trade war. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Jun Shi, Associate Professor of Economics at John Jay College and Graduate Centre at CUNY. And we're discussing China, specifically comparing socialism um, with the kind of um, capitalism China has been practising over the past three to four decades versus what um, the kind of um, capitalism US and many other countries in the world practice. So Jun, how do people in China today, especially young people and the working class, view China's revolutionary history, um, socialism, Mao Zedong, so on and so forth? Yeah, that is also a very important question. I think at least a significant portion of, of the young professionals, right. they are more closer to, let's say, a Western a petty bourgeois class. I mean, they pretty much that's similar kind of education they work in similar kind of enterprises and they, they are heavily influenced by Western political economic thoughts. Among those people, you, you see the typical division of, you know, you have conservatives in the Western sense and you have Western liberals living right. in China. So that, 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 those, the, that group is, has been a uh, very vocal part of the Chinese youth in the last two decades or three decades. They're well-educated. They have important jobs in the media or other things. So they have an influence. Um, at the same time, I would say the majority of the young people, the younger generation, they do not quite follow, the, they, are not, they do not quite follow the Western, either the Western conservative or Western liberal way of ideology. They are, I think they're still heavily influenced by the, um, let's say, the Chinese revolutionary history. One reason of this was since the Chinese Communist Party was always in control, the students in uh, all of the mandatory, you know, compulsory education system, they always learn about Marxism and socialism in right. their text. <laughs> many, many young, young people, they told me that, well, at school, they hated learning about, about Marxism or socialism because right. that's kind of a political education. They felt like, <laughs> what, 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 what does this have to do with my life? Yeah. I, don't, I don't want to learn about the evolution of human society or <laughs> historical materialism or dialectics. All right. But I, I think, you know, this mandatory training in Marxism, no matter how, how basic that was, it, it, it definitely planted some seeds in people's mind. And 
when they graduate from school, when they actually, you know, really went into society, they joined a, a, a you know, a company, they suddenly realized that all the things, the, the boring political education, that, that makes huge sense because they are exploited by their boss. Right. <laughs> and they, they do feel, well, this is capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just on the books. It's my life. It's my fate. And once they make that connection, all the things they've learned in the past came to life. And they, they, many of them became radicalized in that process because, you know, it, it's one thing to learn something on the books. It's quite another to actually experience it as a, you know, selling your labor power to a capitalist boss. In recent 10 years or 15 years, there is a visible trend of radicalization of the Chinese uh, younger generation. From some point in that last 15 years, people, when people talk about uh, Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, mm-hmm. they don't obviously, they, you know, in the Chinese culture, we don't say Mao Zedong. You know, the older generations, they would like to call it's the chairman. Yeah. Uh, but the younger generation, they don't use chairman. They use the teacher. That's the common yeah. word. The teacher. But they, sometimes, you know, you, you read what they write on, on, on the Chinese social media, and sometimes mm-hmm. they have this teacher once said this and this. I mean, it was like, who is a teacher? I mean, that always refers to Mao. Uh, so that, that it shows how popular uh, Mao re- really is right. for the Chinese younger generation. And that rising popularity has, I think, made you know, the liberals or the more conservative people mm-hmm. feel threatened. In another interview, Jun, you mentioned that the Chinese masses sort of rejoiced and, and celebrated um, in the 80s when the country started to shift towards the free market, started to embrace the free market a little bit more. But in the 90s, after about 10 years, people in China realized that they could lose their jobs and that it's not just stories that they've heard. What do you mean by this? For generations, that the Chinese people don't really know what unemployment is. This is typical for any socialist country that uh, you really have guaranteed employment. So for the the Chinese workers, they would take that for granted. They would say, well, you know, it's still the Communist Party. We we will never lose jobs. And the the country, the state, how can they let that lose lose our jobs? So it's very distant. You know, it's like something that you would read from books about the United States and in any other typical capitalist economy, like uh, workers there who can lose their jobs, very few of them will realize that they, this would come to them. So in the 80s, when they were imagining or reimagining how much prosperity, how great, how much freedom, whatever capitalism will bring to them, they didn't really realize what's the consequence, what's the, what's the cost. Of course, I mean, everything would sounds perfect. Um, but in the 90s, when the actual massive reform started, when the, a small group of people started to take, take over the state-owned factories, you say, well, you know, actually, it's mine. It's not the state-owned enterprise anymore. It's my private, my precious, and you just right. go away. I mean, I don't want you here anymore. And that was such a revelation to I would say, millions of workers that, that this, this could happen. Many of them were not totally unprepared for this. I think they, it was such a time of struggling. I mean, they, many families just try to do whatever they can to survive. You know, from the stories I've, I've, I've seen, I've heard, 
uh, it was really tough that period. And I know that the Chinese case was not the worst. You can imagine how bad it was in Russia, in all the former Soviet republics, mm-hmm. and how, how bad it was. But in China, it was bad enough. What I find very interesting, right, is that if they're not a communist country, then why do many leftists and left movements around the world side with China in the um, US-China trade war or, you know, some have called it the 21st century Cold War? Is it merely a case of lesser of two evils? I I think there are many different reasons Mm -hmm. why particular activists or, you know, a left, you know, left organization uh, might side with China in this Cold War. First of all, even you know, leaving aside you know what is China, what's the Chinese society's nature, etc. Leaving that aside, many people I think see it clearly that it was the United States that started the aggression mm-hmm. against a particular country, and which is very familiar to many of us <laughs> because right. the United States has done this so many other times. And when they saw this kind of thing happening. Uh, I think it's the general sense of solidarity with another country that at least had shared so much with uh, in history, in, in, in this colonial legacy with the, the entire third world. I think there is a level of solidarity there. It was, you know, it's attacked by really the, the biggest enemy of the, the entire working class in the world, mm-hmm. United States. So that is one part of that. Another thing is that you know, no matter what China's internal political economic dynamics are or how they have changed, on the global level, I, I think the Chinese government, it didn't follow the United States, follow the West completely. I think it follows them on many, many occasions, but, you know, but it doesn't follow them always. And it has its own opinion. And I think it retains some level of that consciousness, some right. of that uh, strategy from the era of, uh, let's say, the Bandung Conference era. Mm-hmm. You know, it has respect in, you know, each other country's, you know, domestic uh, politics, uh, political economy. So that is that, that kind of traditional thinking that has been playing a big role in China's uh, foreign policy. That could be very different, let's say, from the typical U.S. or Western right. style. I can attack you for whatever reason, you know, yep. I think it's, it's good. Also, they see, I mean, not in today's China, but they still see a certain level of potential coming out of China's trajectory, how China could be a model of development, uh, how other countries can learn, even if a little bit from from China, how China was able to lift many millions of people out of poverty. And could other countries also learning, critically learning Mm -hmm. what was, was done correctly and maybe other countries can develop in the same way. I, I think it, it definitely provides some potential that China with other countries can build an alternative global economic system that might bring a, a more equal, you know, fairer global system to, to, to many other countries. For, for all those kind of reasons, I think people can choose to say, at least be critical of the U.S. aggression against China in this Cold War or new Cold War. Although China has embraced uh, the free market, 
why is socialism and communism not viewed with such disdain and, and antagonism in China, despite bring, being a capitalist country, right? Um, the way it is in many other capitalist countries, including here in Malaysia. I think it really has a lot to do with the particular history and, and also class struggle in that country. It's totally okay to discuss communism, socialism in China. I, when I was a school kid, you know, we have all sorts of discussions about communism. And some people would say, well, communism would never arrive. And other people say, well, well, we're going to do it someday. So it was open discussion. It right. was totally fine. In the United States, for example, where I'm working now, you can't have that kind of conversation. I mean, <laughs> you're going to run into huge trouble if you talk about communism in any regular you know, school. But still, I would say the United States may have a little bit more space than other places. For example, if you look at the countries where it used to have a, a communist party has, and where the communist party has decades of struggle or even can threaten the government. So I think it was in those places where communism, socialism really can make a threat, meaningful threat. I think the ruling class will be very cautious. They will try whatever they can to suppress conversation or interest in something different. Because they know once people just started discussing this or talking about it, it can make changes. Um, well, in the United States, since the, the communists, the socialist movement is so weak, it has been destroyed once and again. I mean, so I think the ruling class is relatively relaxed. You know, mm -hmm. they, they know people here wouldn't be able to make much changes at all. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, even if people are not happy with it, they, they still have the voting system and go vote for whatever, you know, some kind of people like Trump, or they can go for some other progressive version of that. So, so it's not a concern to them. You have a little space. Uh, but in other countries where the class struggle is more intense, is more direct, that level of tolerance wouldn't be much. I mean, the ruling class would be very, very sensitive, like, don't talk about this. Even in the Chinese case, many elites in, that, in, in China, they would love, let's say, you know, people don't learn about Marxism, don't learn anything about socialism, whatever. Um, but the Communist Party is still in control. And the revolution is the basis of the legitimacy. Mm -hmm. They have to teach it. They have to let kids learn it. You know, when, when children learn it, I mean, that naturally would, you know, potentially give you, give you some kind of a theoretical weapon to right. criticize the current society. I mean, that's not something they, they, they want, obviously, but they cannot prevent it from happening. I mean, that, it's something interesting about the, the current Chinese society, this structure. So I think the capitalism overall has not really secured its control in China. It has not controlled everything yet. Like in Russia or in many former Soviet countries, the first thing after, after the demise of the, the, the old system is that, you know, communist party is now banned when they teach all kinds of crimes of communism in school so that kids wouldn't get interested in, in those. All right, so I just have one more question for you, Jun. Now, China has grown so much over the past three to four decades, right? What's preventing the CCP from going back to their socialist roots? 
when the Chinese Communist Party started to to uh, to emerge in China in the 19, early 1920s, you know, it was after the Soviet Russia's success. Um, there was a model, you know, it's, it's a huge model for the global right. working class. You know, the working people now have our own state. <laughs> so Soviet Russia was the entire world's working people's uh, homeland in that way. But now, you know, there was no, <laughs> there was no such a thing. Uh, I think this is a challenge to most revolutionary people in the world nowadays, because it, there's no clear model to follow. Um, and it's hard to, to do anything without a leading example. Right. <laughs> On that level, the Chinese Communist Party, even the more, let's say, left-leaning members of the party would feel like, where can we go? They don't mm-hmm. have a theory that can adequately deal, help them deal with what the contemporary world, like, what, what can we do? Right. <laughs> How can we build socialism? That is something that there is all sorts of discussions, conversations, but there's no one that can say with certainty that, you know, this is the plan. Let's do this. When, when you don't have a clear revolutionary theory, the seemingly pragmatic, seemingly, you know, reliable, safer line, go with the flow, that is very naturally the mainstream. We, we don't want to do the huge risk experimenting with, with whatever model. We've been doing this successfully for 30, 40 years. Why don't we continue with that? Don't you like more money? Now, on some level that for the last 40 years, global capitalism has been doing relatively well, despite all the crisis. But when very recently, we see more crisis yep. on a global level, that capitalism seems unable to handle those. Yep. But prior to that, you know, 80s, 90s, early in the 2000s, I mean, capitalism, it was the dominant form. It was hard for people to, even within the Communist Party, think about something that we can go beyond that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that this is this is one thing that the continued global capitalist dominance. The second is once you make the transition, once you have made basically you made alliance with the capitalist class, not just the domestic capitalist class you, you work with, but also with the global capital, big companies from the West or from other places. And you have if you want to continue doing that, you have to follow their rules. Um, if you do something different, there will be consequences. Right. I mean, that, you know, they can, you can easily face sanctions uh, or some other things, which can have devastated uh, impact uh, on the Chinese economy. Now it's so deeply integrated in global economy. So, so if you have that kind of situation, it is, it just make the risk even higher, <laughs> even bigger for anyone to, to think about something different. So keeping the status quo always seems safer to all the parties involved in that decision-making process. And not to mention that many of those, you know, the countries and and the families, they benefit immensely from privatization, from all those market stuff. And they, you know, they have all interests to protect. I think those are the major difficulties Mm -hmm. that even a genuinely, let's say, left-leaning leadership in China would face when they think about the possible ways of going beyond capitalism. That's something that all the people in the world face. Right? Right. We need to think about 
the, the ways that we can go beyond capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I still think that China might offer some test sites, you know, some places where we can see different ideas, different perspectives, different social models can compete within China. I still yeah. think that is possible. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Jun. That was Jun Shi, Associate Professor of Economics at John Jay College and Graduate Centre at CUNY. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.